Hello, I'm Gemma Birrell, Artistic Director of Sydney Writers' Festival. You're listening to a podcast with Geraldine Brooks, interviewed by Kate Evans and recorded live in November 2015. Geraldine Brooks has been celebrated for her work as both a journalist and a writer. She's written various books that were international bestsellers and received the ultimate critical acclaim when her novel March was awarded the Pulitzer Prize for Fiction. In this conversation, Geraldine speaks about the body of her work and new novel, her fifth work of historical fiction called The Secret Chord that retells the life of King David. As Alice Hoffman said in the Washington Post, it's a study of loyalty and betrayal about a man who's caught up in sin as much as he is in faith and song. Hello everyone and welcome to this conversation with Geraldine Brooks as part of the Sydney Writers' Festival here at the Seymour Centre and on ABC RN. It is such a pleasure to be here with journalist, essayist and novelist Geraldine Brooks. Hi Geraldine. Oh, hi Kate. Now we're going to be talking about your latest book, The Secret Chord, but I wonder if we could start with the many different types of writing that you brought to it. Now you were always a letter writer and reader. You had pen friends all over the world as a child. What did that teach you about what words and stories could do? I think it taught me about the um, magical relationship between the writer and the reader because my pen pals that I acquired in Europe and the Middle East and the United States were people onto whom I projected all these fantasies about their lives. You know, I'm, I'm growing up in the western suburbs of Sydney at a time when we lived in a pretty small world, really. It wasn't an expansive place like it is now. You know, the culture was quite enclosed. So I fantasized that these kids elsewhere were having much more romantic and adventurous lives. And then, you know, later on when I went to meet them, not so much. <laughs> and, that's, and that's the sort of... I, I think about this now when people say, well, what do you want the reader to get out of your novel? I wouldn't presume to say, because I think it's, it's this fantastic connection that happens when somebody picks up a book and they bring their own experience and their own needs to the book and they find in it things that you didn't even, as the writer, necessarily mean to put there. And so I think that's what the, the correspondence with all those uh, hapless kids <laughs> taught me. But by presenting international stories, is that what then propelled you into journalism and to ultimately becoming a foreign correspondent? Well, I didn't, I wasn't thinking foreign correspondent, but I was thinking journalist from a very young age. I was about eight and uh, I had a dentist appointment in town, which was a big deal for us, so um, my mum said, we'll go and see Dad at work, and Dad was a proofreader on the Women's Weekly and uh, the Daily Telly in those days, and so we went to the Consolidated Press building, and the presses were still there in those days, and it was uh, right at the time that the afternoon edition of the paper was about to go to press, and so he took me down to the press floor, and it was, a magical place, the huge, you know, spidery lino-type machines grabbing the type, and the big ink truck had just injected all this ink into the cisterns under the building, and there was a sort of inky smell in the air. And then the foreman hit the big red button that made the presses run, and the newsprint is spooling so fast that it's a blur, and then he reaches for the paper, and he grabs one and he hands it to me. And it's warm. <laughs> it's hot off the presses. <laughs> and I looked down and I read whatever the headline was and I thought, I'm the first one in the city that knows what's going on here. And from that eight-year-old time, I just wanted to be a journalist. But, you know, I was, you know, not thinking foreign correspondent, not thinking war correspondent, maybe some sedate job covering the theatre. <laughs> <clears throat> but you did become a foreign correspondent, and one of the things that you describe in your book, Nine Parts of Desire, is reaching a point where you're so constrained by the cultures that you're in, in the Middle East, that you have to find other ways to tell the stories. 
you have to find other almost doorways into the story. What did you do? So, you know, I, I had my experience as a reporter on the Sydney Morning Herald and, and then, you know, very briefly I worked in the United States and it's so easy, you know, if you want to find out what ordinary people are thinking, you walk into a pub or a bar and you sit down and you ask them, no big deal. For a woman in many countries in the Middle East, <laughs> A, there are no bars, and B, you walk into the equivalent, which is a coffee shop, and either one of two things happens. It either clears out like a nuclear bomb just exploded, or people start hitting on you, or at least they did in those days when I was somewhat younger. Uh, and so it wasn't... I couldn't do the kind of bottom-up reporting that I like to do with ordinary people and getting their opinions. I was sort of reduced to this horrible business of getting official interviews where you sit in a gilded salon with a second secretary for something or other and get lied to. And head of state interviews interested me not at all because they didn't get to be the head of state by telling some reporter anything important. So uh, I was really basically biting the carpet in frustration about how to do this job when I realised that I did have an opportunity that was open to me as a woman, which was to tell the story through the women of the region. And once I had that epiphany and went about my reporting that way, not only did I get access to an incredibly rich and important story of what was happening with women who were embracing a more radical or orthodox Islam, but it also gave me access to the men in their lives in a much more culturally acceptable way. Does that experience haunt this latest novel in some way, given that you were in the I Middle think East? it informs it very much. You know, I was thinking about many of those women um, as I was trying to see this world of King David's wives, the women in his life, who have a lot in common with many of the women I reported on in that they're living in a very male-dominated society where they don't have any public power, where their lives can be very precarious, where decisions are made for them by somebody else. But as a correspondent who was very interested in, in women's experiences, I learned that that's not the full picture, that there's a lot of private power that women are able to wield. Um, and, you know, I can give you a couple of examples of that, if Please. you like. Yeah. So one very weird afternoon, I was invited home by Mrs. Ayatollah Khomeini. <laughs> this is not a name many people can drop, but... <laughs> Khadija Khomeini was very gracious and she's giving me tea and she's trying to tell me what a great guy the Ayatollah was and what a fantastic husband and how when her babies were little he would get up in the night and feed them. And so I came home and I told this story to an Iranian refugee dissident friend of mine and she said, yes, he fed the babies but did she say what he fed them to? <laughs> but the point of that is that um, her father didn't think much of Ruhollah from Khomein when he came as a young, impoverished religious student seeking her hand. But she, in the traditions of, of a very conservative family in that time and place, was allowed to bring in the tea She's completely covered in her chador, but she brings in the tea and she sees this guy. She thinks he's hot. <laughs> and when her father says he's not suitable, she thinks, hmm. So she has a very convenient dream that night that Ruhollah, the religious student, is sitting with all the prophets of Islam being treated by them as their equal. And she tells that to her father. And suddenly the marriage is going ahead. So. You know, that's an example of, of private power very quietly wielded, and 99% of Iranians probably couldn't tell you that 
Khomeini's wife's first name is Khadija because she lived so privately. But the elite knew very well that if you wanted to get something put in front of Khomeini, you went through her. And you worked that out by going into the side doors, entering the women's quarter, sitting down and having tea. I wonder if there's an analogy there to what you're doing as a, by writing historical fiction. Are you finding other doorways into the history, other, other ways into the stories in order to make sense of it? Yeah, I think, you know, one of the things as a reporter that is, you know, the glory of journalism is you don't write it if you can't prove it. So even if you have a very strong opinion on what, have, what might have happened, you cannot print that unless you can source it. And with fiction, when you come to that roadblock, when you can't know for sure what happened, then that's when the novelist's work begins. That's when you imagine. You try and make an empathetic leap and say, maybe it happened like this. And so, yeah, it is these stories from the past where you can report it out to a certain extent, but then you come to that place where the line of fact frays and disappears, and that's when you make the swan dive into imagination. There are other things, though, that drove you into the world of the imagination, I think, and I just read an um, essay that you wrote in a collection called Mothers and Others about mothering and careers and so on, and you talked about... Um, stopping being a journalist and the sort of freedom that fiction gave you. Can you explain what happened? What happened? <laughs> yes, well, I always uh, tell people that I have the Nigerian secret police to thank both for my experience as a mother and my fiction career because I really loved being a foreign correspondent. I was lost in that world. It was completely consuming and I thought it was, you know, a really great privileged to be a witness to history and to hope that you might be, by you know, reporting the truth, able to shape things in a more positive direction sometimes. And I was so distracted by it that you know, I was 39 years old and I hadn't considered doing anything else. And then uh, I was reporting in Nigeria about shell oil being in collusion with the brutal military dictatorship of the time, Sunny Abacha's rule, and how Shell had called in the military to fire on peaceful farmers who were protesting Shell's desperation of their land. And uh, I'd gone around doing what you do, getting the evidence of that there actually had been live fire massacres of the, these people who were unarmed. And then I, had, as you do, went to the military to get their side of the story. <laughs> Big mistake. Um, they handed me over to the secret police and they threw me in a lockup, fingerprinted, mugshot. I had no idea how long they were going to keep me. And I thought, I'm 39 years old and I forgot to get pregnant. <laughs> And if they keep me even 18 months, maybe I blew that. And it was the first time that I'd even considered it. And suddenly it was very important to me. So when they deported me three days later, I went home and greeted my husband with great enthusiasm. <laughs> <laughs> and when... I had a baby. I certainly didn't want to be going off on long, open-ended assignments to places where you get thrown in the slammer anymore. So um, that was when I was really lucky, and I got the Kibble Award for my second book of nonfiction, Foreign Correspondence. And as you know, that's a prize specifically to encourage women writers. And I was very encouraged. <laughs> and I thought, I'm going to use some of this prize money to take some time and see if I can write fiction. So why fiction, though? What was the appeal? Because I didn't have to go off on a long, open-ended assignment <laughs> to get it. <laughs> I could go on a very predictable two-week research trip, taking my baby along and come home and then make up the rest. <laughs> Did you already have a set of stories that you'd encountered that you knew you wanted to tell? No, because I didn't know if I could tell any of them. I mean, or that one, but that one had... Was that one Year of Wonders? Yeah, so Year of Wonders, you know, 
many years before when I was still completely obsessed with being a foreign correspondent. I had a brief home leave, or you know, I was living uh, based in London at the time, and I loved to go um, bushwalking or rambling, as they euphoniously call it, because there's no bush, of course, but from village to village and through, you know, what passes for a bit of wilderness, and. Uh, and we're in the Peak District, which is a very lovely and fairly unsung part of um, Britain. And uh, saw this finger post that said Eam, the name of the village, and underneath in brackets, Plague Village. I thought, that's interesting. Not many places try to get tourists to come by saying <laughs> Plague Village. <laughs> but it worked for me. And, and we went there, and in the church was this wonderful exhibit of what had happened in 1665 when bubonic plague was carried to the village on a, in a bolt of infected cloth from London and how the villagers took the unique decision to voluntarily quarantine themselves rather than flee and spread the infection, which is what happened every other single place. And that story just took hold of my imagination in some way. And even though I didn't run home and quit my job and run up to the garret and start writing, I did keep that story in my mind and uh, thinking about um, the contemporary crises I was covering and wondering if if anything that I was seeing and how people responded to catastrophes was like the people of Eam. So when I decided to see if I could write fiction, that was the story. With your other fiction, though, I mean, you've written about um, the real man, who you call March, in um, The Father from Little Women, who was sort of a utopian philosopher. You've written about a Native American scholar a book conservator, now King David. What do you look for when you choose your subjects for your fiction? I look for... So Mark Twain had this wonderful... Um, he had so many wonderful lines, but one I particularly like, he said, fiction must be plausible, truth needn't be. <laughs> and I look for implausible truths, uh, these wonderful stories from the past. If I made up a village where they agreed to quarantine themselves. That's not as interesting as the fact that it was true. If I made up the fact that a Native American in the period of first contact, raised in his own language and culture, learned Latin and Greek and graduated from Harvard with the sons of the Puritan colonial elite, if I made that up, that wouldn't be so interesting. But because it's true, it's extremely interesting. But they're stories where you can't know everything. So I had started out to do a story about Jane Franklin, because she's always intrigued me. She's probably the best-traveled person, not just woman, of her era. She went all over the world. She was somebody who could see the brutalities of the convict system, particularly as they affected women, and the horror of the Aboriginal genocide much more clearly than other contemporaries of hers. And I was fascinated by her, and I... I loved that she, you know, basically walked across the southwest wilderness and she was not in a chair being carried. You know, people say, oh, she didn't walk across it. She was carried across it. They couldn't. If you've seen the horizontal scrub, nobody was carrying her. Um, the chair was for propriety. So anyway, she was fascinating to me. But when I actually sat down with the material and started to form a novel, I found that she had written a journal which was meticulously kept and documented every single thing that happened to her. And I thought, holy cow, there's no room for imagination here. This is a job for a narrative historian. So I had to... What about Alcott, though? Because I remember reading um, a, a long essay that you wrote. <coughs> Excuse me. I remember reading a long essay that you wrote in, I think, The New Yorker, mm. about this historical figure who was fascinating. And it was a really terrific long-form article you could have written the story of that man as straight history, but you chose to do it as fiction. So what did that offer you? What, what extra well, I didn't, did you get? I didn't set out to write about Bronson Alcott. Bronson Alcott was this gift wrap package that flew in the room after I started writing the novel that I wanted to write, which was to explore the idea of what happens to idealists who go to war 
because of their heartfelt conviction about a good cause and then find themselves doing extremely bad things as happen in every war. And I was very intrigued with that with the Civil War because where we were living at the time was a village that had been settled by Quakers and this is in Virginia. And then when the Civil War broke out, some of the young men thought that slavery was a greater e evil than violence and they enlisted to fight on the Union side. And this is from Virginia, so that was one thing. But there were Quakers, which was another, which meant they were going to be read out of the religious meeting for doing this. And I was, that was the question that I set out to explore in that novel. And I thought, oh, Mr. March in Little Women, he's an idealist at war. I can maybe use him as the vessel to explore this. And seeing Louisa May, you know, based the little women on herself and her sisters, maybe there's some little thing in Bronson Alcott's personality that I can borrow to form this character. And now I'm embarrassed that I didn't know who Bronson Alcott was because he was this radical thinker who shaped the work of the better known writers of his time, Emerson and Thoreau, uh, greatly. I mean, they would not have done what they did if it were not for Bronson. I truly believe that. And as one of the reviewers of that book put it, if Emerson and Thoreau are the shooting stars of American idealism, then Bronson Alcott was the dark matter from which they drew their energy. And so I didn't start out with Bronson, but Bronson was a gift to help me make a character for Mr. March. And he was a writer. You also have the people of the book. Education is central in Year of Wonders and a woman learning in Caleb's Crossing. And then in this book too, Nathan is a storyteller. Are you writing about the experience of reading and writing and why it matters? Is that central to it? Well, it's certainly central to me. Um, books were everything in our family. You know, we didn't have a lot of material stuff when I was growing up, but my parents loved to read. And my sister and I would go to the local library and we went on the bus because we didn't have a car. And Mum and Dad always brought home many books for the week. And, and we got library cards as soon as you could possibly scroll something that could be passed off as a signature. And uh, it, was, it was just what we did in our family. And so when I think about people who have to do without that and the struggle that so many people have had through the millennia, just to have the privilege of learning to read and write. And, you know, particularly women. So in Caleb's Crossing, we've got a highly educated group of people. The people who first settled America were highly educated, and that's why there was Harvard in 1636. You know, they barely had um, a roof over their head, and already they're building a college because it was that important to them. And yet they didn't teach their daughters to write. It was okay for a woman to learn to read because then she could read her Bible to the children, and that was a good thing. But why would you teach your daughter to write? Because writing is a skill that you use to communicate with people outside of the family. And what Puritan good wife needs to be doing that? So, you know, that there are no journals by women of that period is such a loss. Those voices are silent. The voices of enslaved people were silenced by law. It was against the law to teach a slave to read. So I'm drawn to sort of the agony of that predicament. And in Afghanistan, I, was, uh, I heard about this girl who was banned from going to school under the Taliban, and she was so thirsty for knowledge that she would climb over the roofs of the houses and hide up on the roof and eavesdrop on the boys who were being educated at the madrasa. And that was how she stole her education. But if we look at the, the bookshelf of, of the books that you've written, um, which are all based on all sorts of research, it seems that as you've gone on, you've had less and less solid evidence to work with. So in a way, it's become harder and harder. 
And so, and I'm wondering if that gives you more or less freedom as a writer. Oh, look, it's a pain in the neck to not have any solid evidence. I, I like to have a good scaffolding of fact. Um, I, you know, I'm not quite sure, you know, I knew what I was getting into with David when I set out. I was fairly gobsmacked to find out that outside of the Bible we've got one stone inscription that even says he exists. So why, that's <laughs> the big question, I guess, is why, why King David? Oh, well, because what we do have in the Bible is, is a complete story of a man's life that encompasses everything that can happen to a human being. And it just, it took a hold of me. I thought, you can, you can work on, you know, every strong emotion, every fulfilled desire, every worst nightmare is available to you in his story. He's everything. He's an artist. He's a killer. He's a, he's a builder and, and forger of unity, and yet he's a very divisive figure. He loves his kids to a fault. He raises terrible kids, and then he raises one amazing one who's come down to us as the byword for wisdom. So what's not to like? <laughs> <laughs> But how risky a choice is he, given that he's a figure of import in Judaism, in Christianity and in Islam? Was it a politically risky decision, do you think? I wasn't thinking about that. I think I felt a lot more responsibility when I was writing about Caleb Cheshtiamak, who was uh, an actual Wampanoag from Martha's Vineyard, where I lived, who had an actual life that we know only the barest, sketchy details, and I, I felt a, a great deal more burden than I did in taking on David, because there's this big Jewish tradition of you take the text that you've got, and if it's not satisfactory, then you make up stuff to fill in the holes. And this is, this is an old tradition called Midrash, and people have been doing it for millennia. So... This is just a bit of modern midrash, basically. <laughs> so you're positioning yourself as a storyteller within the Jewish tradition. I guess that's what I was curious about, given that he's a figure who appears in so many traditions. But yeah, well, no, I, I mean, I want to... Okay, so what we have in the Hebrew Bible um, and why I've chosen to use the names as they appear in the Hebrew Bible. Somebody said to me, why did you change the names? And I'm, I'm like, no, no, the real question is, why did King James change the names? Can you just, <laughs> can you just explain that, though? Because it has quite an impact as, as a reader that they are the Hebrew names rather than any sort of more familiar King James-type names. So what are the names you used? So... Um, Samuel is Shmuel, um, Nathan is Natan, Jonathan is Yonatan. The only really problematic one to me is Solomon is Shlomo, and that's really hard. <laughs> <But> <laughs> in for a penny, in for a pound, right? Um, but I wanted it to be unfamiliar. I didn't want people to think... I know these guys. These are the guys in the weird clothes and the funny facial hair in my colouring book from Sunday school. I didn't want that. And I did also didn't want, you know, because we've become very fond of giving our kids quite biblical names. I didn't want it to sound like, you know, somebody calling out for their four-year-old on the, you know, Redfern playground, you know. I wanted it to be as strange as it should be, given that it's the second Iron Age. Um, and so I, I reverted to the original names. So what else did you need to know to imagine your way into the Second Iron Age? Oh, lots of things. Everything from what they ate to what, what were the houses like. When they say it's a palace, what do they mean by that? Uh, how good could it be? You know, what, uh, what kind of weapons were available to them? What were their battle tactics? What did Hebrew music sound like? What kind of instrument was considered a harp in those days? Everything. So, and instead of being able to rely on um, letters and journals and the usual things that I would use, I relied a lot on archaeological 
research and, you know, so it's the difference between what's written down and what's thrown in the garbage, basically. <laughs> and so you present this figure who's charismatic and beautiful and a singer and unbearably cruel. How important is the violence to telling this story? The story is a very violent story and excruciatingly so in some passages. It's violent in the scriptural text. And you can't really write about it and avert your eyes from that. And so, you know, I drew on my experience as a, as a war correspondent in that region. Uh, some really difficult things that I saw, and yes, the weaponry is different, modern weaponry is very different, but the effect on the body is not different. How much were you drawing on your experience as a, a political and foreign correspondent in describing the backstabbing and <laughs> <laughs> terrible levels of betrayal? Yeah, well, you know, this is, I mean, power and its temptations and what pe people are prepared to do and what they're prepared to give up and how much of themselves they will give up and how power changes people. This is, this is a timeless story. You know, uh, the party room in Canberra <laughs> is not so different from um, a second Iron Age palace in Israel, apparently. <laughs> um, and, you know, I, I tell the story that as I was researching this, uh, I was so intrigued uh, that General David Petraeus, who was the US military commander in northern Iraq, his soldiers' nickname for him was King David. And then, of course, he scandalously um, uh, committed adultery with his biographer. <laughs> Biographers are very dangerous people, apparently. <laughs> Remembering Bob Hawke. <laughs> I, I, I heard that Gough Whitlam, uh, when a beautiful woman would walk into the room, he would say, she's very lovely. I wish she would be my biographer. <laughs> <laughs> but the other timeless aspect of the story is what happens to the women in your novel. So a lot of the violence is directed at them. Mm. Um, they're used as political pawns. They're, they're often hidden and silenced. Why was that so important to you? Does that go back to the nine parts of design? Totally. There's a complete through line there. And I think that what attracted me to this story was that it's one place in the Bible where there are very well-drawn female characters because usually we don't get much about the women. Um, Lot's wife. Mrs. Lot. <laughs> we don't even know her name. Give me a break. You know, Noah's wife is, you know, pretty important. All that animal husbandry. And yet, <laughs> no name again. Whereas David's wives are sketched quite brilliantly, and, uh, but with great economy, and also only from a male point of view, and only insofar as um, how they were important to David, but how he affected their lives and what happened to them outside this narrow focus is not stated, but I was fascinated by it. So I wanted to go in and switch the point of view and see him through their eyes. But we're also seeing him through the eyes of his biographer, who's the narrator. What can you tell us about your Natan? So Natan, um, I always need a voice. I like to write in first person because I think it gives an emotional connection and a directness and it does so much of the work for you if you get the right voice because how they talk tells you who they are and that character will tell you how they're likely to act and that sets your plot in motion for you. So until I've got a voice, I really haven't got anything and I wasn't sure who was going to be the voice of this novel until I came across in the Book of Chronicles a couple of references to the Book of Nathan, which it states, uh, tells the story of David, his acts from first to last. So I looked up 
Nathan. We don't have a book of Nathan, but Nathan is a character in the, in the books of Samuel and a very important one whose role is to castigate the king when he, for his moral failures and to tell him the terrible consequences that will come to him from these things. And I thought, this is a really cool guy. Who has the guts to do this? And how do you get to be that guy? And if we had this book that apparently existed and now exists no more, what more would we know about David? And how would a truth teller like this have gone about constructing the account of the Acts from first to last? And so that set the novel in motion for me. So you've got David, the shining singer, the architect of a new city, in some ways of a whole imagined state there. Is he the hero of your novel or is it somebody else? Uh, I think maybe Shlomo is the hero, or at least he is the, he's the figure that redeems everything because he's the, he's the one who will take what David has built on these corrupt foundations of so much bloodshed and he will give a time of peace um, because it, the novel doesn't go there but when Solomon consolidates his power after that he becomes renowned for the peacefulness you know that's the, that's the one time where every man can rest under his own grape arbor and olive tree very remarkable thing for that part of the world where people still can't do that even today. And so Shlomo, or Solomon, as the, the moral force, he's only there at the very end of the book. Will he get his own novel? <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> My younger son wants me to write this because... This one is dedicated to my older son because <laughs> he, he was the harpist who got me thinking about other boy harpists. But my youngest son is uh, from Ethiopia. And in Ethiopia, there is a complete conviction that the first king of Ethiopia was Solomon's son by the Queen of Sheba. Well, I want to read that book. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and this is a good opportunity now to hear from you and any questions you might have for Geraldine. Now, we do have some microphones that will be brought to the front. That's also a good cue to remind you to turn off your mobile phones. Um, of course, you can tweet as you like. Um, and also, as, as you speak, please remember, if it's OK with you as you ask your questions, that we are recording this for later broadcast on Radio National. So I think, I think the stands are actually moving so that we can see who's who and who's speaking. That was the plan as I understood it. Um, and I suspect we'll have a little bit more light so we can actually see people and people don't kill themselves on the stairs because that's never a good look. Let there be light. <laughs> And I'll take this opportunity to do one of those little radio things we like to do. Um, I'm Kate Evans. We're here at the Sydney Writers' Festival and on ABC RN with Geraldine Brooks talking about her new book, The Secret Chord. And some applause would go very nicely there. <laughs> And so who'd like to be the first to, or perhaps you'd like to make your way to this microphone? Again, please be careful on the stairs. And, and, um, and don't be shy. <laughs> don't be shy. This is a great opportunity. A writer, a journalist, an essayist, a memoirist, um, please don't be shy. I can see somebody making their way down. And so it's going to be... <laughs> I believe it's going to be microphone number two first, if you wouldn't mind coming down. Um, good evening. I'm interested in how much research you have to do for these books because they seem to be so alive and real and taking such unusual subjects and areas, but what length of time or how many people do you have to help you? How does it go? Uh, 
me, myself, and I, you can't delegate. Oh, well, that's not true. I took my 10-year-old as a research assistant <laughs> when we went to Israel to go and be in the places that are associated with David. But no, I, I don't um, have researchers because they wouldn't necessarily notice the thing that might be the very thing that will give me the idea how to connect uh, this piece with your imagination as a reader. Um, I don't do it first. Uh, I just do enough to get that voice sorted out to figure out who that person is and how they sound. And then I start writing. And I let the story tell me what I need to know. And then I go and find it out. And I write again until I get to another blank space where I need to know something. And I do it that way because I think that there's a real risk, particularly in historical fiction, but in anything that's deeply researched, that you'll fall in love with a particular set of information just because it's interesting in itself or because it was really hard to get it. And you'll cram it in there, <laughs> whether the story needs it or not. And there was a really good book that I was enjoying enormously. Uh, and then, you know, obviously the novelist had gone to a lot of trouble researching how you tune a piano because there comes a point about a third of the way through the book where some, he's tuning a piano and this character says to him, how do you tune a piano anyway? <laughs> and then the next 10 pages are all about how you tune a piano. And I thought, oh, you know, you got it. So I try and take all the piano tuning out of my <laughs> novels. Thank you. And number one we're going to now. Thank you for your fantastic books. I was wondering in light of the comments about the role of women, whether as I've been enjoying introducing nine parts of desire to women who are interested in learning more about why women respect their cultures and do what they do within their own cultures, whether you'd update that book in some way. What were the things that you would do in 2015? What's the comments you could add to nine parts of desire from when you wrote it to now? Yeah, Please. so I did, I did do an afterward to the book after... Um, 9-11, because everybody kept saying, well, what do you think now? And so eventually I sat down and I wrote that. And in that afterward, I also wrote, as far as I knew, what had happened to the women in the book. Um, I can't really update that book without doing what I did then, which was live among the, the women of that region for six years. And that's not possible now. But what I would do if I was that person is probably, you know, much more dangerous than what I did, but I, I really would want to know what it is like to be a woman in territory controlled by ISIS. Um, you know, that is a story that very much needs to be told. And there might well be a young journalist in the room who's prepared to do that. Well, yeah, just if they are, be safe. <laughs> and at um, microphone two, we have another question. Hi, Geraldine. My name's Julia. Um, thank you. It's, uh, I have quite a simple question. When do you know that your writing is good? Ah, a simple question. <laughs> well done. <laughs> yeah, you never know. And it's never good enough. I mean... This book was really ridiculous because I was still revising it uh, as it was, you know, they really were saying, you have to give it back now. <laughs> and every page I would look down and there would be something else that needed to be changed. And since I got the finished book, I've changed two things for the next edition already. And I'm sure I'll find more. You know, it's never right. It's just you have to surrender at some point. <laughs> but... I also, I also, I you know, I'm a bit, um, I'm a bit selfish in that I write what I like to read myself. So um, if it's, if it's starting to, you know, sound like 
the kind of book I like to read, then I know I'm on the right track. <laughs> Thank you. And we have a, another question at number one. Um, hello, my name is Elena, and um, thank you so much for your amazing books. Um, I probably now onto my second dozen as giving prayer um, people of the book as a present. Well, thank my, you very much friends. for <laughs> helping pay my son's college tuition. <laughs> um, let me take you to a say different region. Um, as a writer, foreign correspondent, uh, memoirist, the type of books you write, the subject matter that are interested to you, what is your opinion on uh, 2015 Nobel Prize winner for literature, Svetlana Alexeyevich, and her works and the storm that it's creating, whether it's deserving, not deserving literature, politics. Yes. I think that it's remarkable that the prize went to a journalist and I think that uh, it is an acknowledgement that journalism can be literary and can play an extremely important role in the cultural conversation, that it doesn't have to be fiction, that writing about the present and taking the trouble to absolutely find out what is going on and to take a stand. Um, I think it's wonderful that um, a light was shone on this important work. And always controversy, that's fantastic. I mean, controversy is... I love it when people are arguing about books. What could be better? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. And uh, Mike, too. Hi. I was wondering whether um, your book, which I find quite scholarly, um, whether you wanted us to work a little bit harder by um, seeking out the meanings of the quotations in Hebrew. And I personally was resorting to Google to find out the, the meanings of the, of the words. And that really, I felt that I had to work hard to get to know them. And one particular um, word, which description of a place which I really enjoyed was Har Megiddo, which of course is Armageddon. Um, and not explaining that, you know, it was a, the hill of, of Megiddo, um, that I had to do the work to find that out myself. I felt, felt that that was kind of you throwing out a challenge that you have to do a bit of work to get the most out of this book. <laughs> um, um, yeah, no, I wasn't really trying to torture you. Uh, <laughs> I just think that it's more evocative if you give the place names as they appeared in, in the Hebrew Bible. Uh, and, and if there is a frisson of recognition like that, then, then that, to me, is more like an added bonus. Like, you don't have to know that Beit Lehem is Bethlehem. But if you do make that connection, then I think that's kind of, you know, that's a, a cool moment for the reader. Or that was, I, I was trying to, you know, give little presents, not... Homework. <laughs> um, I, you know, I, I, I have mixed feelings um, listening to your question because the last thing you want to do as a novelist is take someone out of the story. And to the extent that this is a distraction to you as a reader, profuse apologies. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm interested in language, so it was, it was no burden for me, but yeah. I imagine that it would have... Yeah, possibly no, created a roadblock for others. I'm not I sure. tried to, if I was using a Hebrew expression, I, I tried to back into it so that even if you didn't know what it was, that you would get it from the context. But yeah. I do love some of those words, and I thought that it was much better to use Merkava than chariot, because if you say chariot, then suddenly, I don't know about you, but, you know, I'm seeing suddenly, you know, Kirk Douglas. <laughs> <laughs> And I didn't want that. I wanted it to seem more foreign and far away. And I would really compliment you on um, making the ancient world such a vibrant place, which indeed it was, and you know underlies a lot of our cultural traditions and uh, anything that 
makes people more interested in their antecedents is a good thing. Thank you. Thank you. And there's a, another woman who's been waiting, I think, behind the microphone too. And then we'll go to one, and then I think that will probably be, be it for our questions. Thank you very much. Um, Geraldine, I just wanted to ask you, I read in the Sydney University Alumni Magazine the interview with you where you mentioned the fact that you did have very little factual um, data to work with when you wrote the book, and I was um, just marvelling at your empathy with these characters given how much has actually been written, how much ev lack of ev evidence you had, but also um, was amused by some of the things that you found out, particularly that there were no horses at the time and that you thought it was odd that King David had to ride a donkey. Um, was there anything else that you found out about that time that wasn't in the book that you thought was interesting, amusing or unusual? Um, yeah, just to clarify on the... Um on the mounts. Um, <laughs> they did have horses, but very few, and they used them to pull the chariots. For some reason, they were not into riding horses, but they, they rode mules. And so when, I, when my son and I went to Israel, I didn't know that, and we spent an afternoon riding camels, and we got a sore backside for nothing because there certainly <laughs> were no camels in Second Iron Age Israel, as it turned out, but I didn't know that at the time. So then I had to research mules, and then I found out how fa fabulous mules are. So now I'm a big fan of mules. And <laughs> they're an underrated animal. You can have very handsome mule. Uh, <laughs> was there anything else that I found out um, that was surprising that I maybe didn't put in? Um, uh, I'm sure there were things, but I can't, can't come up with anything. I think if I found out anything, that surprised me. I tried to, I tried to shoehorn it in there. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Yes, I was a bit surprised by the mules as well. <laughs> and the final question on microphone one. Um, hello. Um, look, I love your books because they combine both fact and, and the lyricism of your writing, which is just fabulous. And, but I really am interested in having read them all, which is your favourite character or... Um, or if not, which, which one should we not <laughs> like? <laughs> yeah, that's a very good question. People often ask, which is your favourite book? And I really can't do that because the books are so bound up with the memories of the time, the writing of them, the research, um, the fun I had with my kids, who I always exploit as research <laughs> assistants because they see the world in such a fresh way. Um, but people haven't asked me who's my favourite character. And I, I think it probably is probably Anna Frith, who was the first person who rose up out of the grave and started talking to me. So I'm very grateful to her. And I liked her company very much. I loved the way she changed, how she stepped up out of her very circumscribed life and fought her fears and, and did what she needed to do for her neighbours, and so when I finished that book, I found I missed her a lot, and I would find myself still talking to her in my head, <laughs> which was a little disturbing. <laughs> On ABC RN and at the Sydney Writers' Festival, we've been talking tonight to Geraldine Brooks. Please do thank her. I hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. You can find a range of other talks, interviews and discussions from Sydney Writers' Festival on iTunes.